can the book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face-to-face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's Revelation Prophecy Seminar, and we're going to look together at lesson number eight. What are we going to discover tonight? Well, we're going to take you to heaven and uh, show you that it's not a place on earth. I think there was an old song about that in the 80s. And uh, let's go straight into our four theme questions. Firstly, what has God prepared for his people, the redeemed saints? Secondly, why does the city come down to this earth? It's an important question. Number three, what are the dimensions of this heavenly city? And is everybody going to fit in it? And number four, what will be the greatest joy for you when you're living in the kingdom of heaven? Would you join me as we open in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, tonight again, we claim the blessing and the privilege and the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide, lead and direct us. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I'd like to welcome you to Revelation's Amazing Space City, Revelation Seminar Session number eight. Let's get started. For centuries, skeptics viewed God's people with derision and disdain as they spoke glowingly of traveling to and living in God's heaven beyond the sky. With contempt, the critics pointed out that space travel for human beings was a scientific impossibility and that such trips should be limited to the fantasy world of comic strips. Then suddenly, men began venturing into space. Today, NASA plans for space stations and colonies in the sky. Not too many have begun preparing for a voyage through space, however, because of uncertainties regarding the factors of scheduling, property, ownership, isolation, loneliness, effect on health, stress, and of course, fear of the unknown. The heart leaps when one thinks of leaving this earth and living in a fantastic new storybook city in the sky. Something about that thought fires a person's soul as few other things do in this world. And there's a reason for this, a God-given reason. Jesus implanted deeply within the human heart a desire to live in space because he plans space living and space travel for his people when he sets up his new kingdom. 
Well, talk, talk about mind-boggling. Let's get into the facts. Would you join me in heading number one at the bottom of our lesson guide on page one? It's entitled Our Heavenly Home. Thank you so much for joining us for lesson number eight, Revelation's Amazing Space City. Question one, what has God prepared for his people when we're directed to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. And this refers to Abraham and the patriarchs. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a what? A city. Friends, if only we could imagine or catch a glimpse in this session of heaven, I'm sure that it will really be Holy Spirit inspired, and it will give us a real thrill as we contemplate the future that God has for them that love him. The top of page two in question two, what is the name of the city? We're going to Revelation chapter three and verse 12. John writes, him that overcometh will I make, number one, there's four promises to overcomers here. Revelation 3.12, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. That's point number one. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him, number two, the name of my God. And number three, the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. There's our answer. Which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. That's the fourth point. Well, what does it mean to be a pillar in the temple of God, to receive and be written on the name of God and the name of the city of my God and God's new name? Let me share with you extra material not found in the lesson. So I direct your attention to the screen. Here are four promises to overcomer. Overcomers. What does it mean to be a pillar in the temple of my God? So if you want more details on being a pillar, look at Galatians 2.9 or 1 Timothy 3.15. The word temple in the Greek is naos or naos, and it means more the interior of the temple or the sanctuary, the holy place or the most holy place. So when John says that God's people who overcome are a pillar in the temple, they really mean that the overcomer will hold a permanent, important place in the very presence of God. We're looking at uh, some of the points um, under question number two and Revelation chapter three and verse 12. So God's name would be written on the overcomers and also the name of the city or the new Jerusalem would also be written upon the overcomers. What does this mean? The overcomer will receive the permanent impress of God's character. The image of their creator will be fully restored in them. And these victorious saints will be totally God's own as attested by his name or sign of ownership thus affixed upon them. He also bears the name of the new Jerusalem. That's the third point. So this may be taken to signify that the victorious Christian is a citizen of the new Jerusalem and therefore has a right to reside there, Revelation 22, verse 14. What's the fourth promise to overcomers in uh, Revelation 3 and verse 12? 
that God's new name would be written on the overcomers. What does this mean? Well, the overcomer has a third name written on him here, as he is a symbolic pillar, which is that of Christ himself. The name is Christ's name himself. The overcomer's reception of the divine character represented by the name, Acts 3.16, is mediated by Jesus Christ and is accomplished by the gift of the life and character of Jesus Christ to the believers, see Galatians 2.20. To receive Christ's name is also to receive confirmation of his ownership, 2 Corinthians 1.22. So here are four promises to overcome us, showing how important it is for us to show the fruits of sanctification. So what is the name of the city? The name of the city is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, friends, do we know what the name Jerusalem actually means? Many people know or think that it means city of peace. I want to go for a Hebrew definition of the name. What does the name Jerusalem actually mean? The place named Jerusalem, pronounced Yerushalayim in Hebrew, is a combination of two words. The first is Yeru, meaning flow. This word has several applications, such as the flowing of water in a river, the throwing of something as being thrown out of, a, of the hand, or as the flowing of a finger in the sense of pointing out the way one should go. The last use is the use in the name Yerushalayim. The Shalayim is from the word Shalam, meaning complete and whole. In fact, the word shalom is also derived from shalom. While it is usually translated peace, it more often means to be complete or whole. So when these two words are put together, they mean something like pointing the way to completeness. Now, I'm going to ask you, in terms of the name, the New Jerusalem, what could be a more perfect name than the name Yerushalayim? Would you join me in question three at the top of page two? What happens to the new Jerusalem at the close of the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 that we studied in our last session, session seven, on the devil taking a holiday for 1,000 years? We're going to Revelation 21 and verses 2 and verse 10. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We jump from Revelation 21, verse 2 to verse 10. John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. What happens to the new Jerusalem at the close of the 1,000 years of Revelation 20? It comes down to the earth because God wants to bring his center of government down to planet earth. Let's go to question four. So where will this colossal space city actually land on planet earth? There must be many, many places it could land. Zechariah 14 verses 1 and 4 and 5 and 10 will tell us exactly where this space city or land. Let's go to Zechariah 1, Zechariah 14, verse 1 and 4. 
Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, Zechariah writes, and verse 4, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. This is speaking, of course, about the third coming of Jesus Christ. The Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave or split in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Verse 5 and 10. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Verse 10. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited. Friends, in session seven, we looked at this view from the Dome of the Rock across to the Mount of Olives using Google Earth. So I was trying to give you a picture of how steep the Mount of Olives is. I want you to look across to the middle of this screenshot from Google Earth and see there the Tomb of the Prophets. See it there with a camera sign. It's actually a camera photographic viewpoint on the top of the Mount of Olives or near one of the ridges on the Mount of Olives. So our next uh, photograph is going to be taken from there looking back at the city of Jerusalem. So here we are up on the Mount of Olives looking back at the city of Jerusalem. You can see the wall there that it goes around the city. You can see the gold dome, the Dome of the Rock, the um, contested Muslim shrine there. And if you look on the left-hand side of this um, photograph, where you see the red star, that's where our next photograph is going to be taken from, looking back at the Mount of Olives to give us a perspective of how high the Mount of Olives is. So here we are looking across at the Mount of Olives. Why are we doing that? Because we're thinking about the Mount of Olives when Jesus' feet touch it at the third coming, not the second coming. Jesus' feet never touch the earth at the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, C 16, 17, and 18. But when Jesus' feet touch the mountain, then it will split in two, and then the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down. There's our answer to question four. Where will this colossal space city land? Zechariah tells us very clearly at the site of the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. The note says, so at the second coming, Jesus Christ comes for his saints as in John 14, 2 and 3. But at the third coming, at the close of the 1,000 years, Jesus comes with his saints, Zechariah 14, 5. The saints are inside the holy city as it descends, and Jesus steps onto the Mount of Olive, and it flattens out to make a great plain, Zechariah 14, 10. Then God's holy city, the new Jerusalem lands on this newly created plain. Well, friends, that's pretty amazing and fantastic when you think about it. We're in question five, halfway down page two. The city is perfectly square. We're talking about the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What is the actual distance around this city? We go to Revelation 21, where a lot of details are given about the holy city, the new Jerusalem. John wrote, and the city lieth four square. Now notice this part. 
and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now, I want you to think about that. That's quite challenging, isn't it? So what is the distance around the city? It's 12,000 furlongs, 12,000 furlongs. Friends, ancient cities were measured by outside wall circumference. A furlong is an eighth of a mile, which means the city will have a circumference of 1,500 miles. And since it is square, each wall will be 375 miles in length. Let's just pause a moment and catch up on the maths here. We're asking, what is a furlong? Well, the word furlong is English. It comes from two words, fur meaning furrow and lang meaning long. So a furlong is a long furrow. What's the definition of a furlong? It's a unit for measuring distance, an eighth of a mile. It's also 220 yards, 660 feet, or 201 meters. So we're now asking how long is 12,000 furlongs? Well, that's a pretty good question. Let's have a look. Firstly, a furlong is 660 feet. So we've got 12,000 furlongs by 660 feet is 7,920,000 feet. Wow. Now, if one mile is 5,280 feet, then we have 7.9 million furlongs divided by 5,280 feet, which gives us 12,000 furlongs and 12,000 furlongs equals 1,500 miles. And it also is 2,414 kilometers. Friends, this is really some size city. In fact, it's 2,400 kilometers divided by four sides. So the sides are 600 kilometers each, or as the lesson said, 375 miles. So let's try and draw this city on the place where we are. So just outside Sydney from the central coast, we're going to go up 603.5 kilometres or 375 miles each side or 2,400 kilometres. So one wall would go from the central coast to past Warwick in the state of Queensland. It would then go west past St George, nearly out to Cullinmulla, then down between Burke and Brewarrina, and then just above Lake Cargelico and back to the central coast. So friends, there it is, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Look at the size of that city, taking a, a, up a large part of the state of New South Wales. And that's what it would look like from space. The note says this area will contain 140,625 square miles. So it is unbelievably gigantic. Here it represents the state of Colorado, the size of Colorado. At least 39 billion people could live in this city. This is five times the world's present population. The size of our present population is eight billion or 7.966 billion people on planet Earth. So this city could hold 39 billion people at one person 
per 100 square feet or 30 square meters um, versus at the moment in Colorado in the United States of America, there's only 6 million people there in Colorado at the moment. So this shows you the possibilities. Would you join me in uh, heading number two? Our second theme question is um, found in question number six. What else does the book of Revelation say about this amazing space city? We've got a huge passage here, Revelation 21, verses 10 to 27. This is the major load of information that's given about the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to start in Revelation 21 and verse 10. John wrote, And he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Let's go to verse 11. Having the glory of God, there's our first answer. This city has the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Friends, I want to tell you that there are very, very few um, illustrations of the kingdom of heaven. But these illustrations are absolutely incredible. So here is a pearl on the left-hand side. This one is named Judah. We have two angels there um, guarding the gate of the city. And you can see there all the steps. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? We're going back to Revelation 21 and verse 12. And this city had a wall great and high. And it had 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Notice the theme of 12. Let's speak about that in a moment. And the names written thereon, notice this, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So, friends, here's an illustration showing the names of the apostles or the disciples and an artist's depiction of the beautiful Pearl Gate. You know, if the wall is 600 feet high, then the gate's going to be a pretty significant gate, isn't it? Allowing angels and the redeemed to come through that gate. So what about the number 12 in scripture? Is it significant? It absolutely is. Do you remember any 12s in the Old Testament? I'm sure some of you are saying, what about the 12 tribes of Israel? And you're absolutely right. Can you think of any 12, any 12s in the New Testament? I think the first 12 that we would remember is the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. Then we are asking, what is the theme of 12 in the holy city, the New Jerusalem? And this is joined together by 12 gates, 12 foundations, and 12 angels. So 12 sort of links together God's people all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, 12 tribes. In the New Testament, 12 apostles. And in heaven, it's linked together by the 12 gates the 12 foundations, the 12 angels, and the 12 pearls. It's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? We're in Revelation 21, looking at 14 to 16. We're also at the top 
of page three. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. This is the angel. And the gates thereof and the wall thereof. Verse 16 of Revelation 21. And the city lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth. Let's go on to 21, 16 to 18. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So friends, in most depictions of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, it's drawn sort of just as a pretty standard city. But if you think the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal, then it's interesting that the holy city, New Jerusalem, 600 wide, 600 long, and 600 high could be actually like this, a cube. This interests me because if anyone has remembered the episodes of Star Trek, the enemy of the Federation were a robotic species known as the Borg, and they traveled around in a cube. And I find that very, very interesting because I'm wondering if that is a counterfeit kingdom of heaven of the true holy city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 17, and he measured the wall, the angel thereof, and he said the wall was 144 cubits. Now, the lesson says that's 216 feet, but if you're not up on cubits, let's just go through it on the screen. So you can Google this, but a cubit is a biblical measurement. It's approximately 18 inches. Therefore, our equation is 144 times 18 inches divided by 12, which gives us 216 feet. Historically, uh, in times past, a cubit was from the top finger to the bottom of the elbow, and a cubit was usually around 18 inches. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal, speaking about the city, verse 17, and the angel measured the wall thereof and 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man. And I've just showed you the measure of fingertip to elbow. That is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Friends, this is just incredible. Let's go on to verse 19. We're going to find there are precious stones here. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. So we've got the beautiful green color. The second, sapphire, the blue. The third, chalcedony, which is a pale bluey gray. The fourth, an emerald, which is a dark green. We're in Revelation 21, 20. The fifth, sardonyx, which is black or onyx, the sixth, the sardius, the bright orange, the seventh, chrysolite, a pale green, the eighth, beryl, a bright orange, the ninth, a topaz, a gleaming yellow, and tenth, a chrysopase, a chrysoprasis, which is a um, darker green, the eleventh, a jacinth, which is a cross between yellow and orange, and the twelfth, an amethyst. So in terms of the jewels of the foundations of New Jerusalem, here is a chart, and I'm going to read those again from my Bible, and I'm going to uh, Revelation uh, 21 and uh, verse 19 and 20. 
and you have a look on the screen. So I'm going to number the um, jewels so you can see the colours. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, also known as agate. The fourth was emerald. The fifth was sardonyx, also known as onyx, which is black. The sixth was sardius. The seventh was chrysolite. The eighth was beryl. The ninth was topaz. The tenth was chrysoprase. The eleventh was jacinth. And the twelfth was amethyst. Friends, I want to tell you that a number of years ago, I was in the outback of West Australia doing a tour up through the Kimberleys. And I had a friend who was out there who was prospecting. And as he was prospecting, he said, uh, what do you think of these rocks? I said, oh, nothing. They're very ordinary. He said, yeah, but have a look at this. And he got a kind of a thin piece of rock that was just covered in dust. And he broke it over another rock. And then as I looked inside, it was a milky colour, and then he got some water and rubbed the milky colour away with the water, and it became this, this chrysoprase, um, which was this green milky colour. And I was absolutely astounded that uh, such amazing colours uh, could be hidden inside the rocks. We're in Revelation 21, verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Here's our answer. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. So here's some more of our answers. So friends, when you think of these magnificent gates with the pearls, um, and then if you see that pearl could swing in and lock the gate, that really is something. So that artist um, has done such a good job here to uh, give us that view of what it might be like. So question six, what else does the book of Revelation say about this amazing city? Well, it has the glory of God. The wall is made of jasper and is 144 cubits high. A cubit is 216 feet. It also has 12 gates, three gates on each side. And of course, the gates are made of pearl. But that's only A, B, and C. We now need to go to D, E, F, and G as we get extra details on the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Here's another artist's view of uh, this pearl gate, just showing you possibly what the dimensions could be like. Nobody knows, but I think it, it gives us um, sort of the wonder, wonder and the grandeur of the city, doesn't it? So question six, what else does the book of Revelation say about this amazing city? Let's have a look at 19, 21, 23, and 25, sections D, E, F, and G. This is why it's so important that you preview the lesson before we get together, because we'll be able to go in a lot more depth and you will understand the context. Revelation 21, 19, and the foundations, obviously the 12 of the wall of the city, were garnished with all manner of precious stones. So there's our first answer. They, the city has 12 foundations, each made of a precious stone. 22 to 24, I saw no temple therein, John writes, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, 
neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honour into it. Revelation 21, verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honour of the nations into it. 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, means a hateful, disgusting thing, or maketh a lie, meaning something that's not true, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, they are the ones that will inherit it. What else does the book of Revelation say about this amazing space city? Firstly, that the city has how many foundations? That's right, 12. And what are they made of? They're made of precious stones, which we've just catalogued. The streets are made of pure gold. They seem to be transparent. There's no need of a sun or a moon for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the light thereof, and there shall be no night there. Now, I don't know about you, but I love music, and maybe you love music. And I just want to tell you this amazing Christian song called No More Night. It's on YouTube, and the singer is David Phelps. And if you haven't heard this, I'm encouraging you to listen to this beautiful, beautiful song about the kingdom of heaven. Um, this song has had over 11 million views. So I think you'll agree that it is a very, very beautiful Christian song talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's David Phelps singing, No More Night. We're in question seven. We're halfway down page three. Thanks for joining us for uh, session number eight. What is the source of the city water supply? Well, water supply is absolutely critical today, isn't it? Everybody's focused on water. What about the kingdom of heaven? Revelation 22 and verse 1. And he, John, says, the angel showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So what is the source of the city's water supply? This is incredible, isn't it? The water of life, the river of the water of life, throws actually out of God's throne. Question eight, what miraculous tree, which Adam and Eve ate of before sinning, will be restored in the holy city? Well, I think we remember what the name of that tree was in the Garden of Eden. So let's go back and refresh our memories. So God drove out the man. That's Adam and Eve. And placed him at the and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, which are angels with flaming swords, which turned every way to keep them away, that is Adam and Eve, from the tree of life, that they could not come over and become immortal sinners. What miraculous tree, which Adam and Eve ate of before sinning, will be restored in the holy city? The answer is in Genesis 3:24, it's actually the tree of of life. Question nine, the tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit. Here we go again, another 12, and yields a crop monthly. What purpose does this tree serve in Revelation 22 and verse 2? In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits, 
and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, people have asked the question, what are the healing of the nations? There's no sickness in heaven. Well, let's go back to the Greek word. The Greek word is therapia, from where we get the word therapeutic. In classical Greek, therapia has the various meanings of service, nurture, or care. Isn't that interesting? Our second text is Genesis 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That was the reason why he was banished. So what purpose did the tree of life serve in the ancient times? Then it was a tree to help people to live forever. But the tree of life bears 12 kinds of fruit and yields a crop monthly in the New Jerusalem. In that environment and context, the leaves in heaven are for the healing of the nations. But back on earth, man was booted out lest he take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let me share with you the note at the top of page four. Please look at the screen. It seems clear that the leaves and the fruit provide the antidote to death and perpetuate immortality. This tree, therefore, provides eternal youth for God's people. Question 10, how do the things which God is preparing for us compare with the sufferings which we must pass through here on earth? Friends, I'm now going to share with you my favorite verse, Romans 8.18. I love this verse. It's really encouraged me. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Friends, whatever you're going through now, whatever trials and traumas, it could be health issues, financial issues, relationship issues, or anything. I want to tell you that whatever you're suffering right now, these things are not worthy. They're not worth comparing. They're absolute rubbish when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What is the glory which shall be revealed in us? I think the answer comes in Colossians 1 and verse 27, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ living in our hearts, shining out and saving others is really the hope of glory. How do the things which God is preparing for us compare with the sufferings which we must pass through here on earth? They're not worthy to be compared. That takes us to our third heading, halfway down page four. Let's have a look at our new world. In lesson seven and question 11, we learned that when the holy city descends to earth at the close of the 1,000 years of Revelation 20, the wicked will be raised and Satan will lead them in an attempt to capture the holy city. What happens to them then? So let's refresh what we learned last time in Revelation 20 and verse 9 in session 7. And this army, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they camp compassed or surrounded the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. So they go up around the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So what happens to the ones who attack the city? 
friends, the Bible is very, very clear. They are devoured by fire. This is the hell fire. This is the lake of fire. This is the final and eternal destruction of the wicked that scripture refers to. We will have a whole lesson on this that comes up later. Question 12, what else does the fire accomplish in addition to devouring Satan, his angels, and the wicked? We're going to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. What else does the fire accomplish in addition to devouring Satan and his angels and the wicked? Friends, the elements of the earth melt. The fire is so hot, there's fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Friends, the fire devours sin and sinners and purifies the earth. You know, Jesus takes no pleasure in this. In Ezekiel 33, 11, he says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the wicked and the rebellious and the unrepentant must be destroyed so heaven can take place. Let's go to question number 13. What does God do next in Revelation 21 and verse 1? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So that's interesting. We get a new heaven and a new earth. Then 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Peter writes, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. What does God do next? He creates new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So, friends, when we think about creating new heavens and a new earth where there's peace and justice and love and no fear, what does it mean about new heavens? Surely there's nothing wrong with the heavens as they are. So let's go and search of the three heavens that the Bible speaks of. I'm going to share with you some extra information that's not in the lesson. So please direct your attention to the screen. Well, God has three heavens. Number one, in Revelation 19, 17, it speaks about Misu Urano, the heaven where the bird flies. In other words, our atmosphere, our sky heaven. That's pretty much the one that's damaged. Because number two, the starry heavens, Psalm 19, 1 to 4, they have not suffered any damage. And also God's third heaven, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4, Paul spoke, spoke about going to the third heaven. He spoke about it as being paradise. He didn't know if he went in the body or out of the body. He couldn't tell. But friends, the second heaven, the starry heavens, the third heaven or paradise, they're all undamaged. But that's not the same case with our local atmosphere, our sky heaven. So we need a new atmosphere for planet Earth. Why is that? Well, friends, going back to August 1979, here is the ozone hole back there um, over 40 years ago. So what is it like as we come forward in time? There's the ozone hole in August 2001. 
Here's the ozone hole in 2005, and you'll notice it is quite a huge area. Then the years 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, here we have 2020 and 2021. So friends, these are huge areas of damage. Therefore, we need a new heaven, meaning we need a new atmosphere, a new atmosphere, a new heaven surrounding planet Earth. It needs to be repaired and it needs to be replaced. Question 14 at the bottom of page four, where will God live after the holy city becomes the capital of the earth made new? We're going to Revelation 21 and verse three. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, John wrote, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Where will God live after the holy city becomes the capital of the earth made new? Well, very simply, he'll be here on the earth with his people. Let me share with you the note at the top of page five. God promised, or Jesus promised, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth in Matthew 5, 5. Who are the meek? The meek are the selfless. The meek are the humble, and the meek are the kind. If you've ever attended a memorial service for someone who's passed away, you will notice how many people remark on kindness. It's one of the most highly valued human characteristics. We're in question 15 at the top of page five. Everyone will have a fabulous home in the holy city. Who builds this home? Well, you might be surprised in John 14, 2 and 3. Jesus said, in my father's house or dwelling place, there are many mansions or houses. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here are the four greatest words of scripture, I believe, where Jesus says, I will come again and receive you under myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Friends, Jesus said in verse two, I go to prepare a place for you. Everyone will have a fabulous home in the holy city. Who actually builds this home? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I remind you that if you are planning on going to the kingdom of heaven, it's worth every sacrifice, every moment you spend in Bible study and prayer and sharing with others. It really is. Did you know that there are two homes in heaven for you? There will be a home in the city and also there will be a holiday home for you in the country. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The only uh, the only downside is you might actually have to build the one in the country. Let's go to heading number four, God's real people. Well, what kind of bodies will the people who enter God's kingdom actually have in Philippians 3, 20 and 21? I think we covered this last in our last session. For our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our answer who shall change our vile or sinful body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things under himself. That just means that Jesus can overcome the power of sin 
and Satan and death. And so we get beautiful, glorious bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies are like Jesus. Well, what sort of body did he have? It might be worth finding out. Let's have a look at number 17, question 17. After Jesus' resurrection, what actually kind of body did he really have in Luke 24 and verse 36? And as the disciples thus spake in the upper room, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, he'd come in unobserved, invisibly, possibly when someone opened the door. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they'd seen a spirit. This is a bit disappointing, isn't it? These disciples have been with Jesus for three and a half years plus, And now when he turns up, they're not sure if it's him um, and whether he's a ghost. Verse 38, and Jesus said unto them, why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He's referring there, of course, to the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. So he says, look, come and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. In Luke 24 and verse 40. And when Jesus had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet so they'd know. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And there's no record of that food falling on the ground because he was a spirit being. After Jesus' resurrection, what kind of body did he have? He had a body of flesh and bones, and this is what we can expect to have as well, except it will be a glorified, sinless body. Question 18, what will the saints do on the new earth, which demonstrates they are real and not ghosts? All right, here's uh, some news about our holiday homes. We're in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Let's go to Isaiah 65 and verse 21. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. There it is, friends. There's the holiday house. You'll be able to go out and build houses. You know, it'll be a productive time. It'll be an interesting time. It won't be a boring time. It'll be a time of fulfillment and joy and happiness, a time where you won't be worried about people stealing your tools or breaking and entering or any violence or any death or being shot or stabbed to death. Isaiah 65, 22, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So, friends, this shows that the kingdom of heaven is a safe place to be. What will the saints do on the new earth, which demonstrates they are real and not ghosts? They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Let me share with you the note. Acts 3, 20 and 21 promises that everything will be restored to God's people that Adam and Eve lost by sin. Adam and Eve were real people doing exciting real things, but with sinless natures, brilliant minds and perfect, flawless, eternally young bodies in every way. Yippee. All this will be restored. 
and God's people will be too satisfied and happy for feeble words to even be able to describe it. Please join me at the top of page six and question 19. How does Paul describe the glories of God's new kingdom? I do love this verse. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? First Corinthians chapter two and verse nine. But as it is written, because Paul is quoting Isaiah 64, four, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How does Paul describe the glories of God's new kingdom? He's saying, look, eyes haven't seen it, ears haven't heard of it. Even the heart of man can't fit in how glorious this is, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And if you love him, you will obey him. We're at uh, heading number five, no disease or death. Here's the good news about doing away with disabilities, disease and death. Let's go to question 20. It has sections A, B, C, D, E, F, G and H. And this will cover what we need to know about no disease or death. We're in Isaiah 35 and verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. If you ever seen a little child who's deaf, deaf, it's absolutely heartbreaking to watch them, isn't it? What comforting and exciting facts about heaven are emphasised? The eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. All right, well, there's our answers to A and B. Let's have a look at now our answers to C, D and E about the lame and those who are unable to speak and about sorrow and crying. We're in Isaiah 35 and verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, meaning a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. This shows how beautiful the broken down earth that smashed and destroyed will be when it's reconstituted and recreated. We're in Revelation 21, verse 4, and God shall wipe away how many tears? All tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are what? They're passed away. What facts about heaven are emphasized? The lame man will leap as a deer. The tongue of the dumb will be able to sing and God will wipe away all the tears. Let's have a look at more facts about heaven, F, G, and H, Revelation 21 and verse 4. So God will wipe away all tears. Notice here there shall be no more death. There won't be sorrow. There won't be crying. There won't be any more pain. People are not going to have to go to the drugstore and get drugs. It's going to be incredible, isn't it? For the former things are passed away. In Isaiah 65:25, the animal kingdom's affected, and the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They, these animals, shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. I think the artist has captured that pretty well, but the look on the wolf is kind of um, 
Am I still a plant-based eater in the kingdom of heaven? But the answer is that he will be a plant-based eater and will not be carnivorous. Um, so this shows a massive change in the animal kingdom from death and destruction. Isaiah 11.6, the same idea. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together meaning the calf, and a little child shall lead them. A little child, you see a baby there with the lion, little children with the lamb, they will all be safe. What facts about heaven are emphasised? There's no more death, sorrow, crying or pain. The beasts will not hurt, nor will they destroy. A wolf, leopard and lion will be led by a little child. I remember the story of a Russian um, zoo where an American was uh, travelling and he saw a uh, a lamb in the lion's cage and he asked the Russian uh, keeper to come over and said to him, I don't understand. How can there be uh, this, uh, this lamb in the lion's cage? How does that work? And the Russian said, but sir, it is not the problem because we have to put in a new lamb every day. Well, friends, that's how things are operating now. But the wolf, leopard and lion will be led by a little child. Question 21. What promises God given about heaven that applies to the tragedies of this present earth in Isaiah 65 and verse 17? For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now, people have asked me, what is this former that shall not be remembered nor come into mind? Well, the answer is in Isaiah 65, verse 16. Let's have a look at the previous verse. What are the former things that won't be remembered nor come into mind? Scripture can interpret Scripture, can't it? That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Because the former what? The Scripture answers itself. The former troubles are forgotten and because they're hid from my eyes. Friends, have you ever wondered about that? How can we be in heaven and have these things hidden from our eyes? I just want to take a moment to perhaps give one illustration of how this might be able to happen. I want you to imagine that Aunt Gracie is not in the kingdom of heaven and you're up there and you are really missing her. How are you going to be able to survive in the kingdom of heaven missing your favourite aunt? Well, maybe I can describe it as our memories being like a 12-track recorder, audio recorder. And so let's say here on track number four, we have a very noisy and overbearing saxophone. Notice on the slider underneath where the arrow is, there is a mute button. And after you've recorded the 12 tracks, if the saxophone cannot be turned down sufficiently or it's overbearing or it's just out of time or out of tune, then you can mute that saxophone and it is not in the piece. I'm wondering if God is able to not eradicate those memories, but to mute the pain of those memories. Friends, what promise has God given about heaven that applies to the tragedies of this present earth? The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. The note says, the margin here in the Bible says, come upon the heart. The thought here is that the woes of this present life will not weigh upon the hearts of God's people in the new earth. 
We're at heading number six at the top of page seven, eternal joy and health. Question 22, the prophet Isaiah gives us three more marvelous promises regarding the new earth. Well, what are they? We're going to have a look at some more passages in Isaiah. Isaiah was the gospel prophet, and he gives us a lot of hints about heaven. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Once again, it's talking about the new earth being recreated. Isaiah 35 and verse 2. This desert shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. You know the cedars of Lebanon. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. Carmel and Sharon are the mountains there. And there was a rose of Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Isaiah 33, 24. And the inhabitants shall not say in the kingdom of heaven, I am sick. The people that dwell there shall be forgiven their iniquity. Isn't that interesting? That sin is linked with sickness, not only mental sickness, but physical sickness. Fourth text, Isaiah 60 and verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy wall salvation and thy gates praise. Friends, we're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, God willing. And that is going to be absolutely fantastic and amazing. Well, the prophet Isaiah gives us three more marvelous promises about the new earth. What are they? The desert will blossom as a rose. The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. There's no sickness there. And violence, thank God, shall be no more heard in the land. You won't need any crim-safe um, protection at the front door, uh, security screens. You won't need uh, keys and locks and uh, safes. Um, and vaults. These things are all going to have passed away. Question 23, will people recognize each other in heaven or will we lose our identity? This is the question that many people have asked. Will we be actually recognizable in heaven? Um, will we actually know our loved ones in heaven? Well, some jokers have actually said that we'll be so gorgeous and good looking in heaven that we'll have to have a sign around our our next saying who we were on planet Earth so people can recognize us. I don't think that's actually the case, but 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, but then in the kingdom of heaven we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Will people recognize each other in heaven or are we going to lose our identity? Friends, the answer is, then shall I know in the kingdom of heaven, even as also I am known here, down here on planet Earth. 24, eternity is a long time. Will people ever become bored in heaven? This is a good question. Some people think they're going to be up in heaven, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, is a spirit or a ghost in a disembodied spirit. Friends, this is not what's going on in the kingdom of heaven. Let's ask God, are we going to be bored? Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures for what? Forevermore. Eternity's a long time. Are we ever going to be bored in heaven? No. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. There's just eternal happiness 
and pleasures that last forever. Friends, no boredom in heaven, not ever. Question 25 is at the bottom of page seven. Who will the redeemed be like and who will be their constant companion? In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, Jesus Christ, for we shall see him as he is. Revelation 14 and verse 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. This is speaking here of spiritual purity and uh, not being involved in spiritual adultery. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits under God and to the Lamb. Who will the redeemed be like and who will be their constant companion? We shall be like him. We will be like Jesus in character and in glorious bodies. These redeemed follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. Friends, here is a glorious reality. Just think of it. To be like Jesus and to have him as a constant companion, who can improve on that? Nobody can. Top of page eight, as we wind down to the end of our lesson, question 26, sin is the one thing that can keep me out of God's kingdom. Can anything be done about it? We go to Revelation chapter one and verse five. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus is the only one who can wash and cleanse us from our sins. We now go to 1 John 1, 7 and 8, where you'll find our answers. But if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, we are liars. Sin is the one thing to keep us out of God's kingdom. What can be done about it? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is why it is time to be overcomers. Seven promises to overcomers in Revelation 2 and verse Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. It's interesting there's not too many sermons and presentations on being an overcomer, but that is a prerequisite for the kingdom of heaven through the grace, glory, and power of a sanctified life, a life where Christ is living in us, the hope of glory. Question 27, Jesus will freely and lovingly cleanse you if you request it. Will you ask him for cleansing right now? I hope you'll put there yes, that you will right now. If you're not sure what cleansing it refers to, then you can read through for homework Psalm 51, which is David's repentance from his sin with the lady, the wife Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So that is worth a reading through and praying through that and confessing your sins, and you can be totally right with God right now as Jesus invites us in to the kingdom of heaven. Well, we started with our four theme questions. What has God prepared for his people, the redeemed and the saints, in terms of the kingdom of heaven? Well, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descends to planet Earth. That's going to be really something. I can't wait. Number two, why does the city come down to this earth? 
because God himself will dwell with his people here. But the question is why? Friends, can you remember something very significant happened here on planet Earth that is big enough to make it the capital of the whole universe in the future? That was the sacrifice, the self-sacrifice when Jesus volunteered to come down here and die for us and he hung on a cross on Calvary. So, friends, the place where Jesus hung on a cross is the place where God brings the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's absolutely fantastic. And you know what? We are more closely united to Jesus Christ than if we'd never fallen. That's worth a thought, isn't it? We can praise God for that. Well, theme question number three, what are the dimensions of this heavenly city and will everyone fit in? Do you remember the dimensions? It's 226,000 square kilometres and can house up to 39 million people. I think that that should be enough room for everybody. And number four, what will be the greatest joy for you when you're living in heaven? I can't answer for you, but maybe this might be able to help. Would it be being able to see Jesus Christ and the whole family of God face to face? And remember, we'll have all eternity to study through the science of salvation. That is such a blessing because we don't properly understand it down here. Well, we look forward to sharing now the quizzes with you. Our response questions tonight are, if tonight's study brought joy to your heart, I'm going to ask you to place a tick in box number one. I really enjoyed taking you on this journey. Number two, if you want to thank Jesus for building your new home in the new Jerusalem so you can be in his presence, not only now but forever, please place a tick in box number two. Our questions tonight are true and false. Let's go. Number one. True or false? The name of the glorious city that God made for the redeemed and that will travel through space is the new Jerusalem. True or false? Lock it in. The answer is, of course, that that's true. That's too easy, isn't it? Question two, does scripture tell us the streets of this city are made of gold in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 21, are the streets made of gold? In fact, transparent gold. And the answer is, lock it in, true. Number three, are the wicked destroyed when they try and take the city according to Revelation chapter 20? Is the answer true or false? Please lock it in. And the answer is true. They have to be destroyed. Number four, God promises that the tragedies of this present world will not come into the minds of the redeemed after sin is eliminated. In Isaiah, we just read it. True or false? The answer is, lock it in. True. Finally, number five, eternity is a long time and there is the possibility that some might get bored. True or false, according to our study tonight. Lock it in. The answer is false. All right, we'll give yourself a score out of five. Friends, tonight we learned about Revelation's amazing space city when it comes to planet Earth. And I'm asking you tonight, are you planning to go to heaven? Because if you are, I hope your life reflects that you're making sacrifices, you're cranking up your Bible study and prayer time, and you're making the sacrifices that are worthy to make sure that you're there. Now, in our next session, number nine, we're looking at the seven seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is an amazing study looking at the political history of the world, 
It's seven time periods. I'm asking you to make sure that you do your lesson, if at all possible, before we meet for the four horsemen of Revelation and Revelation seminar session number nine. What will we learn in Revelation seminar session number nine? We're going to learn who are the riders on the four horses. Number two, we're going to learn the colors of the four horses in the correct order. We're going to find out what does each color actually mean. It's very, very significant, very symbolic. Number four, where were the martyrs where, when their blood cried out to God? Where were they actually? And number five, which seal of seals one to seven are we living in right now? I want to thank you for joining me for Revelation's amazing Space City. The secret of John's successful Christian life was prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what we've learned tonight. We've gone on a trip to the kingdom of heaven. We've tried to imagine what it might be like, and we can see how much you love us. Father, I pray a blessing on all those who will hear this message and will want to follow it, that they may read, hear, and keep the words of the book of Revelation and your Bible. And I pray that you will have mercy on all of our souls. And on that great day when Jesus comes, we'll be there together as unbroken families. And I pray it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for uh, Revelation uh, Seminar Lesson Number 8. And we look forward to seeing you for Lesson Number 9 at our next session. Thank you and God bless. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, or one word, that's True Blue SDA. 